You're listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast, now on Google Play. With Heather Granado, Vice President, Content, Health, and Nutrition. Well, welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast. I'm Heather Granado, Vice President of Content in our Health and Nutrition Network. I am here with my colleague, John Benninger, the Vice President uh, on our Supply Side Business. And we are in New York City, very excited to be here ahead of Supply Side East. And we are talking with Scott Bass, who's the Head of Global Life Sciences at Sidley Austin, and actually is bringing his very unique perspective on the 25th anniversary of the passage of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's always an honor to speak to you, Heather. Thanks. So, Scott, you at the time, back in the early 90s before we had Deshay, really worked closely with Senator Hatch, Bill Richardson, our industry allies like Lauren Israelson, Scott McNamara, really drafting and negotiating Deshay. So I would love, looking back now, how do you think the law has served the market and consumers? That's an easy question. (laughs) (laughs) I think overall, it's been a terrific law. And until recently, I think I and Lauren um, and others have felt that it was best to leave it as it was, even though there are parts of it that could be fixed, especially with the advent of the internet. Having said that, the industry has grown, the healthcare systems around the world have declined, and I think there's a new role that requires heightened standards. So I think it's served well, but the time has changed to upgrade standards and make people accountable so that we can take these products and related food products and use nutrition as a health treatment mode. You know, Scott, for many years, I think you and, and many others, myself included, have thought, you know, Deshay should be untouchable. It should, we should leave it alone. And then there was a lot of people who actually would be completely opposed to the idea of reopening Deshay. But you and others have come around now. This seems like a fairly new uh, way of looking at it. It is, John. It's completely new. And I think what's happened is that success breeds responsibility and the industry hasn't exactly stepped up to that responsibility. So issues like the master list, or I should say mandatory listing, uh, now are at the forefront, and that is a shorthand for many measures of the type that you were mentioning earlier, John. Well, it's not that Deshay has not been touched in the past. We were talking earlier about 2007, I believe, was the implementation of uh, mandatory adverse event reporting. And, you know, did that, you know, damage Deshay? I would argue no. I think it was a responsible step. So are there other things that have surprised you about how Deshay has been implemented? Well, now you're picking one of my favorite topics. Number one, what surprised me is that the earmarked appropriation process has backfired on industry. So at the time, because of the heavy distrust in the early 90s of FDA, Senator Harkin required earmarked funds for things like enforcement. That has now, unfortunately, meant that FDA doesn't have enough resources to enforce, and everybody responsible industry wants more enforcement to level the playing field. So that's one thing. The second is disappointing to me, but something that will come up on May 16th, is that there's been an interpretation from FDA's chief counsel's office many years ago, 201 FF1 sub E, which is ingredients other than herbs, 
vitamins, minerals, etc., are interpreted as needing to have nutritional status. And that was exactly the opposite of why we put it in. And in fact, ironically, at the time, Congress earlier on had put the word nutritional in there, and they took it out. It was We wrote that. We called it the um, CoQ10 provision. Because at the time, it was a popular product, and originally it was grown on mushrooms and logs, but then it became synthetically produced. It wasn't vitamin, mineral, herb, or metabolite. So we wrote that, then conjugated linoleic acid, probiotics, all fall within that. And so FDA, I think, since we now have a non-hostile FDA towards supplements, would be open if that were resurfaced. So that part of the law was intended to cast a pretty wide net and, and make room for a lot of these innovative ingredients not to be a limiting factor. Correct. Exactly. Of course, you've got a lot of innovative ingredients that are coming to market. Um, since 1994 that I'm not sure that FDA is aware of all of these ingredients. What's your take on how the new dietary ingredient aspect of that law has been implemented? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to something I mentioned earlier. Mandatory listing is not just about letting everybody know what's on the market and what's in it. There are several prongs that follow from it. One of them is what you're asking me about. How is FDA going to be able to make the NDI process meaningful? We wrote that. It's primarily a negotiation Bill Schultz and I had over two years to put that wording in. And people have taken advantage of it, Heather, for example, by saying this was previously generally recognized as safe, but they get a less than adequate panel of scientists who write a pro forma report. It's meaningless. FDA I don't know the current figure, but I'm guessing they have fewer than 5%, probably less than 1% of the products that should go through NDI go through. If there's a master list, a mandatory listing, FDA will be easy for them when something is imported, for example, from the Far East. They'll know right away, is this something that should go through NDI or is it on our list? So the answer is I don't think FDA's tried to implement it, but they haven't been able to because industry's not playing. And we've had that, uh, that draft guidance it's come out a couple of times now. Hasn't really moved much recently. Uh, as people talk about taking another look at Deshay, Deshay 2.0, what, what should we do to evolve this law and these regulations? Uh, does the NDI part of it, the new dietary ingredient part of it, need to be better defined for the agency? Or how do we get movement uh, here? No, I think yes. It needs to be much better defined because the provision was negotiated so hard that it has some inconsistencies with other provisions of the act. But the main thing is that people are trying to skirt it, John. And uh, I think if there, if there is, and hopefully will be, a Deshae 2.0, one of the things will have to be a combination of a mandatory listing process and what you just said, a better definition of when a product is you know, found in food mm -hmm. or if it needs an NDI. But it's going to be the manufacturer's advantages to have a, a tightened NDI process and participatory because then we can start exploring exclusivities. So since you don't have patent protection, you can actually do high-quality safety submissions and prevent competitors from coming in because there'll be a standard set. I call it a de facto exclusivity, but there are other things being discussed now. So to your point, it's ultimately to the industry's benefit, people who really want to innovate, get that safety in, because at the end of the day, all regulation is first and foremost about safety. And that's the safety provision, 413. 
What do you know now that you wish you had known when Deshay was being drafted? Well, let's start with the question John just asked. I wish I had known that the NDI process didn't have enough teeth in it. Mm -hmm. There's 301V, by the way, which is a criminal and civil offense that was added to the penalties provision of the act, but it's never been used. The second thing, of course, is the internet. We were a year behind and we had no conception of how that, so to me, even though some people disagree about 403, but the third party literature section to me is irrelevant now. And really, I, the last time I went into a health food store, I said, what is this product? Boy, do you have a book that I could look <laughs> at and maybe read something about the health effects of this ingredient? Heather, no? if you didn't look 29 <laughs> years old, I would say that you're pretending to be somebody from the old generation. But mm -hmm. No. Yeah, yeah. So, no, you're absolutely right. And when you were talking about, you know, as this industry and as the supplements business has become global and information has gone global with internet and everything else, to be able to say that you don't know that an ingredient or a product is out there and what it does uh, is a little disingenuous, I think. Yes, I think so. Very much so. So knowing, so knowing that, you know, we, we've seen 25 years, um, if you could pick one or two or even three things that you would absolutely change about Deshay in a 2.0 version. Um, what, what would your priorities be, I guess? There are probably many things you would change, but uh, what, what would be the top couple of priorities? Well, this is something we're actually discussing all the time now, so I'm happy to go into three. First and foremost is mandatory listing. And um, I don't think you can get a lot of the other meaningful relief unless you have a master list. For example, as I mentioned, imports. You know, if something comes in, it's a minor misbranding offense, but uh, somebody at the customs or at FDA at the customs office at the border can immediately say, this doesn't go in. This is not on the list. Second, John, it goes to your question about NDI. It allows for FDA to say, oh, here are 10 million products. How many of them are new? How many of them are grandfathered? So that's first thing, mandatory listing. Second, I think there has to be some incentive given to manufacturers to do quality safety and ultimately efficacy testing. And that has to be in form, in the form of some kind of benefit. So in the drug area in 1984, there was the Hatch-Waxman Act. I don't think you're gonna see six month or 10 year exclusivities but you can see some sort of marketing advantage given to companies that actually do the right work. The third thing I think is to strengthen the NDI process, as both of you mentioned earlier. I think that we need to have much better definition of what is a new ingredient and better standards to require FDA to adhere to a more predictable way of clearing these products without obviously ever invoking pre-market approval. And then the third, or the fourth of the three, is I think we need to have a much greater resources given to FDA for enforcement. GMP is first, of course, but after that, you also need to be clamping down more on the type of products that you were discussing earlier. Where would those resources come from, ideally, do you think? Is it just funding? Is it a, is it a budget item? Uh, or is it user fees? How, you know, where do these resources for FDA come from? I think both. Uh, there has been a lot of resistance to the word user fee, but 
the things that I've heard are, oh, a medical device could be $1,000. Yeah, if you're going for a pre-market approval application. But if it were $50 or $100 to register a product and a limit put in legislation, I don't think that would offend anybody and would facilitate it. On the GMP side, John, I would think would have to come from uh, congressional budget. Because it is about, as you enter, it's about consumer health, right? It's about a screen. It's about taking a responsible position that we are offering products that people can rely upon. From your perspective, what are the areas that you think FDA and Congress are going to look at Deshay and say, this is our priority when we're looking at a Deshay 2.0? Well, in my discussions with the government and people who've talked to the Hill, I think number one has been the NDI process and just forcing industry to abide. A second thing that they've been concerned about, I think, is the whole internet phenomenon and trying to provide a little bit more of a screen for responsible products and how that plays out. Is it increased evidence of safety? Is it a claims review process apart from FTC? We don't know. And the third that I've heard really is just some sense of what old products are. What's a pre-94, October 94 grandfather product? I think, and I may be a minority here, I think that is much less of an issue than many people think. There's been an industry government deadlock on what proof you need to show it was before October 94. But FDA, the current FDA, is not, as I said, hostile to supplements. And they just want to know what to do. I have advocated, and some others, a joint industry FDA task force of independent experts to look at all these things, not worry just whether you have an advertisement or the latest natural food merchandiser catalog from 1989, but rather um, to look at what's a fair way. Because I think that most of the responsible industry knows that 80 or something percent grandfather products aren't going to be an issue. It's the people who make synthetic versions, people who change the chemical composition. To John's earlier comment about L-tryptophan, people who change the manufacturing process. That's what concerns FDA. It makes sense. And I mean, Deshay was passed because we looked at these products and says, these are products that are designed to help people's health. Correct. They should be safe. They have a history of use. But I don't think we were talking about, you know, synthetic metabolites of an isolate of an isolate. Um, that, oh, well, but it was from the geranium plant. I don't know that that's really what we had in mind back in 1994. It wasn't. <laughs> right. Well, it doesn't mean we precluded it because we didn't mm -hmm. know what we didn't know, but that's why you have the 402F1 safety mechanism in 413, the NDI provision, precise for the reason you say. We bolstered, despite all the stuff that you read in the press, bolstered FDA's enforcement powers. Mm -hmm. We tried to anticipate what you're talking about by writing the NDI process in a responsible way and added safety powers on top of that that would allow FDA to take immediate action, but just hasn't really, industry hasn't played. Right. Well, 25 years on and the industry has evolved and the world has moved on. And I think probably mm -hmm. figuring out how do we modernize this? You know, you've got Food Safety Modernization Act. There are requirements that come up as the global supply chain changes, that we should be willing to acknowledge the truths. I agree. When I started in this negotiation process, Switzerland and Germany were the two top um, sources of raw materials. And of course, it's now India and China. And so I 100% agree. And also, uh, in a Confucian way, um, let's just say that 
the evolution of quality standards is not quite a straight line between two defined points. Mm -hmm. John, other comments? Uh, just looking forward to what the future holds here. You know, as you said, 25 years in, here we are. The industry's grown astronomically since then, uh, and so has the, the need for responsibility. And I think that we have the right people in the conversation here. And, and if the industry can step up, to your point, and be responsible and embrace the idea that good regulations benefit everyone, uh, the market, the consumers, industry, everyone, uh, then Deshaie 2.0 could be a pretty special thing. Amen. And the one thing I wanted to add also is whether it's Deshaie 2.0, I think of it as 2.0 plus, meaning the medical foods category, for example, which a lot of people don't understand, is 20-something years behind industry. And as governments look for a way, and really follows your points, both of you, look for a way to deal with healthcare crises around the world. Because you have an aging population, tons of diabetes and bad diet infected people who have new diseases they never experienced before because of junk food. Um, one of the things you have to do is allow for a broader claims category. So instead of structure function claims, which is a dance around the January 2000 um, Federal Register notice where these lines are drawn, I think the key is also to think more broadly. So whether we make the shade the beginning, it's not the end. And I think the end is really going to a point, I guess, John mentioned you're asking about, which is what's the real playing field now? The real playing field is products that don't require a prescription, that don't have to be government reimbursed, that can actually help people with diseases or conditions maintain their health in the best way, but also prevent. And, and that's where I think this all has to go. I think so. Consumers are interested in taking control of their health. They want exactly. to have products that will help them in that, whether they're early or later in whatever stage of the issue they're dealing with. Precisely. Well, Scott, thank you again for taking the time. It's uh, part of our 25th anniversary, looking at uh, the passage of Deshay. Certainly more to come from Insider in our Healthy Insider podcast. Again, uh, thank you to Scott Bass for joining us today here in New York. It's my pleasure, and it's good to see, uh, how can I say, friends. Again, I won't say older because you're not, but... <laughs> well, years on, and it's always wonderful to see you. Uh, John, great to be here in New York with you. Uh, we'll be at Supply Side East the next couple of days, and we'll continue with our look at Deshay at 25 through Insider. I'm Heather Granado. Thanks so much for joining us. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the health and nutrition industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud account. 